So this week I was imagining what would it be like if Jesus, after he died and rose from the grave, instead, instead of ascending into heaven after 40 days, what it would be like if this Jesus set up shop in Jerusalem. He's like, you know what? Not going back to the Father. I'm going to stay here in Jerusalem. Maybe naturally you might set up shop in the temple. And, uh, and, he, and he just lived there. 2,000 years, like he still lived there today. What would that be like if that's what happened? If the Holy Spirit had never come, if Jesus had never ascended to the Father, what would it be like? Well, you can sort of imagine that a plane ticket to Jerusalem would be a, uh, a premium, right? That there would be lines of people gather us, so many people that no one could really get close to Jesus, God's Son, set up shop in Jerusalem. In fact, I imagine it might look something like this. That is the Kaaba in Mecca, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, if you are, it, it's like a, a time-lapse picture, but uh, good Muslims who are, they, they have their things that they're supposed to do, they're pillars of Islam, and one of the pillars is that sometime in their lifetime they have to take a pilgrimage to Mecca and visit the Kaaba, which is that thing, that cube thing in the middle. And they have to surround it seven times. They, they, they walk around it seven times. This is what good Muslims do. And it's really, really fascinating because even in the symbolism of the Kaaba, where, by the way, at the center of that thing is a meteorite uh, that supposedly fell from earth and uh, marked the covenant between Ishmael and Abraham. It was like God's covenant marker. So that's what's in the middle is some kind of meteorite. And anyway, so they walk around it. But when you look at this, it's really a sad deal because this is the most holy site for them, the place where they can encounter God, but they are not allowed to go inside. Like, the only people allowed to go inside are a few really wealthy people who have status and privilege. Once a year, they open the doors. There's, you can see the doors on the side of the cube. They open the doors. And I was looking at some YouTube video this week of some, you should hear it, just the cracking of the doors and this swarm of people just gasp. Because it's sort of the closest opportunity that they'll ever get to being near God. It was sort of the same way in the Old Testament with the tabernacle or, or the temple. Uh, in the Old Testament, God's presence was in the middle and only the high priest could go in there once a year. And, the, and the, it was sort of this reminder of the barrier that while God lived there, you couldn't get close to him. Now, what's really fascinating as we think about this is if Jesus had set up shop here in Jerusalem and we had this sort of thing, the same difficulties would be in effect for our Christian faith as it is for people who are Muslim or people who are Jewish. And the problem is, is the way that you approach God is by obeying the commands. For Jews, it's the commands of Moses. For Islam, it's the pillars of Islam. That you have to obey these things, and then you can sort of get close if you obey them. Did you know that in addition to the Mosaic law, which Jesus said he didn't come to abolish, and there are hundreds of commands in the Mosaic law. He said he came to fulfill the law. In addition to that, it's been estimated that Jesus gave about 147 or so commands of his own. Now, this starts to feel really burdensome. 
Like, whoa, okay, you're saying that I have to obey all the commands of Moses, and in addition to that, add 150 or so commands of Jesus. And if I obey all these commands, I can sort of get close to God. What would Jesus do in response to this? And we would ask, how could I ever do that? And the answer, of course, to this dilemma is, is, is not that we obey Jesus' commands because we want to get close to him. The answer to this dilemma is precisely the opposite. No, we obey precisely the, for the opposite reason. Not so we can get close to Jesus, but we obey because Jesus came to us. This is how he solved the dilemma. He didn't set up shop in Jerusalem. He ascended to the Father and sent us his Holy Spirit so that those who believe in Jesus have the gift of the Holy Spirit. God in them. You don't have to go to Jerusalem. God came to you. That's why it's good news that Jesus went away to send us his Holy Spirit. Now, we're in this series called Disciple Who, which uh, some of you are looking at this for the first time and laughing. It has nothing to do with Doctor Who or science fiction at all, okay? I just would like to set that straight. If you hate British sci-fi, don't worry. But uh, I just like the logo. The idea here is we're asking two questions. Disciple Who. Who is a disciple? And who should you disciple? Who is it? Are you a disciple? Am I a disciple? And if, if, if so, a disciple disciples people. I quoted Dawson Troutman last week. A disciple isn't a disciple until he or she has made a disciple. And so a disciple is a disciple maker. And so we're sort of asking this question. And, and last week we looked at this idea of the Great Commission where Jesus says, go be a disciple maker. And we established that. And then we defined a disciple. And the definition of a disciple, put it, put it up there, Doug, is, uh, is simply this. A disciple is someone who lives like Jesus, loves like Jesus, and gives like Jesus, and brings others together to do the same. Last week, we looked at the last phrase there, brings others together to do the same. This idea of a disciple makes disciples. Now, Today and over the next uh, five weeks after this, we are going to take a look at these phrases, live, love, and give. And look at what the New Testament has to say about how do we live like Jesus? How do we actually live like him? And so today, what I want to tell you is that we live like Jesus through obedience. Now, who can add these 147 commandments to their life? You know, most of the time we sort of think, well, Religion, what that does is it brings more, more rules, more things into my life. But honestly, that's just try harder, do more kind of religion. What Jesus had in mind was something different. And the question is not which rules should we obey here today. The question before us is how could we ever even come close to living out 147 plus commands of Jesus? You see, what you need to know today is that your ability to live in obedience to Jesus is directly linked to your status as a loved child of God. I'm going to say that again because I don't want you to miss it. Your ability to live in obedience to Jesus is directly linked to your status as a loved child of God. You see, obeying the commands of Jesus isn't simply about trying harder. It's about tapping into our identity as children of God. We don't have to get to God. He came to us through Jesus and now through his Holy Spirit. 
So in the context of John 14, all that we say, we come to John chapter 14. And in the context of this passage, what you need to understand today is that the disciples, this is the upper room discourse. This is days before Jesus is going to be crucified. And he's up there observing the Passover with his disciples. And we know this because of the Last Supper that happens here. And, and this is his discourse. Jesus is giving a lot of information to his disciples here. And this is not Jesus sort of saying, okay, guys, um, I'm going to die here. So uh, here, here's just a reminder of everything I, I said, you know. Like, let me just remind you of everything I taught, and don't forget to take out the garbage. I mean, this is more than just Jesus saying that. This is more Jesus is saying, here's the main thing. Here's the main thing. He doesn't review all of his teaching for the last three plus years of ministry. He reduces it to this. He says, if you want to live in obedience to Jesus, you need to understand that this is directly tied to your status as a loved child of God and as a loving child of God. That's two things I want to say to you today, is that obedience to Jesus is driven by love for God. And then a little later, we're going to look at the idea of that obedience is driven by love from God. But let's tackle the first one here together. Obedience is driven by love for God. You guys know that I geek out about uh, grammar and structure. I've told you that many times. And, and, and studying the passage is so fascinating when you can see structure and grammar in place that John, in this masterful piece of work, put together. But what's really fascinating is, is you look and Jesus repeats the same thing at the beginning of the passage and at the end of the passage. Look at verse 15. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey what I command. So immediately, Jesus has tied living in obedience to him to loving him. Interesting. Look at the end of the passage. He repeats it. He says in verse 21, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. Do you see he flips it? and inverts it. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. If you keep my commands, you love me. Um, this is just a very Jewish way of Jesus of, of, of inverting the idea, stating it in the opposite form to provide a total comprehensive look at that idea. Love and obedience are linked in Jesus' mind. Instead of reviewing all 147 rules that Jesus had taught, he said, listen, this is all driven by love for me. Flip the page. Uh, well, it's my Bible. You flip the page. Look down uh, in verse 23. Jesus says this, this thing again. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. And then a little later on, he who does not love me will not obey my teaching. It's just another way of stating the same concept. Obedience and love are linked. Your ability to obey and Jesus and live like he did, friends, is directly tied to your love for God. It's just tied there. See, the problem is, um, well, it's not a problem. This is so freeing to realize that it's not just about checking off that I've done all these commands of Jesus. Rather, we, we flip this thing and when we say, Jesus says, don't just reduce my commands to a checklist. Love me and engage with me. That is very different. Love-based obedience is so different than fear-based obedience. 
Because there are many Christians out there who are living with a selection of rules that they have picked out from the 147 teachings of Jesus. Um, we also have the entire New Testament, the rest of the New Testament, the, the writings of, of Luke and Acts, the, the Pauline epistles, the general epistles. We have uh, the, all this, this writing, the book of Revelation, all these things. And, and so many Christians are living today, they've picked out a select portion of those commands and said, if I keep all of this stuff and I can check it off and prove that I've done it, I need not fear. And that's just every religion in the world. It's so fear-based. So much religion is based on fear of consequence. Um, not that you and I would ever view God this way, right? Like we, we would never ever be obedient to God because we fear the results, right? Like uh, for instance, imagine that you applied for a new job, a promotion at work. You put in your application, you went through the whole process. Uh, so I know many, many people, myself included, who would say at this time, I better be really careful that I try to, you know, clean up my act a little bit here. You know, I, I need to like avoid sin because I fear that if I don't avoid sin that I won't get the promotion. But if I do clean it up and just live a little extra holy, God will smile on that and give me the promotion that I want to. And that's just fear-based. Uh, talk about it in, in the realm of sexuality in our culture. Uh, you know, the discussion of sexuality is pervasive. It's everywhere in our culture. And I know many Christians who have said, listen, um, I agree that sex is something that, that God wants in, in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. And, and this is great in the context of marriage. And so many Christians have said and have heard horrible things said like this, that sexual transmitted disease, therefore, is God's curse on those who wouldn't keep sex within the bound of mar marriage. I've heard people say things like that. In fact, I've known Christians who have said the only reason that I did not have sex before I got married was simply because I was terrified that if I had multiple partners, I'd end up with a disease and I'd, never, and I'd have that the rest of my life. And that is just total fear-based thinking. Rather than that, rather than that, we could understand sex as something that is perfectly spiritual because it reflects this relationship between Christ and the church. So fear says, follow this rule or get an STT. But love says, Jesus told me, I, Jesus gave me this command because my marriage reflects a picture of Christ in the church and I so deeply desire to keep my sexual desires within the boundaries you set, God, because Jesus, I love you. And I want my life to reflect that love. See, that's love-based obedience, not fear-based obedience. Obedience of Christ without love for Christ is slavery and subjugation. And Jesus isn't interested in making slaves. He's interested in making disciples, love-driven disciples. Obedience to Jesus, as important as it is, only works as if it's driven by love for him, not fear. From time to time, uh, I, I receive emails, <laughs> emails from different people. And, and you know, it, the truth is that if the evangelical world, evangelicals, all those who would claim that evangelical just means gospel, we claim the good news of Jesus, that Jesus died in our place for our sins, and it's through faith that we apply his death to our lives through the resurrection. Right? 
We believe that through Jesus' resurrection and sending of his spirit that we're transforming the world. Evangelicalism is just simply this belief in the gospel, that there was this great exchange. God gave his son for our sins. That's what it means to be evangelical. And the evangelical world could be turned upside down if we lived like Jesus because we actually loved Jesus. The world is filled with people who are trying to tout the commands of Jesus, but don't actually love him. And it's interesting, I struggle to see in many cases what difference it actually makes in their life. Because this is fear-based obedience. When we succumb to this, we risk obeying Jesus by looking nothing like him. Do you think it's possible to obey the commands of Jesus and look nothing like Jesus while doing it? I think some people have tried and are trying. So that brings me back to this email that I got this week, uh, a couple weeks ago. And um, it was interesting. I, I get these emails from time to time, and people will say to me, hey, we are thinking about attending your church or coming to your church, and we have a laundry list of things, questions that we'd like to ask you. Uh, and if you take the time to answer our questions, we might grace you with our presence. And so, uh, you know, and I usually respond because I, I, I love people, and I love engaging people. And, uh, um, and so this particular email had the questions that this gentleman was asking were all about our specific stance on what you would call conservative political issues. I mean, there, you, you know, you can just imagine what the, 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 this was the interview, you know, like if you come up with the right answers about these conservative political issues, then I will come to your church. And so I responded to this like I always respond to this, that we believe that Jesus, the teachings, that, that love drives us to be like Jesus. And we also believe that Jesus, that changes the world through his church. And so when people are driven by love to obey Jesus, it makes a difference in the world around them. And so this is the radical nature of the kingdom of God. And this happens not merely by passing laws on a political level. And I told him, we live, love, and give like Jesus, and Jesus in turn changes the world. Well, that response didn't that response didn't sit well with him. And um, if you send me an email like this, it might get writ read in church sometimes. So I have to read you uh, his response. Uh, this is fascinating and telling. Uh, he said, when you say, quote, we are not a political church, this is just what the left, parentheses, or Satan, wants you to believe. The quote-unquote church is not fighting what directly goes against Bi the Bible's teaching. This is not about politics. About, it's about sin like every other sin that God hates. Wake up your church. That's what he said to me. And I responded, I think there's probably a better church out there for you than Waukee Community Church. I mean, it's simply here. Did you hear it? Well, first of all, the simple premise that if you happen to vote a certain way, you are promoting Satan. Because, you know, Satan only works on the left of the aisle. He could never influence the other side of the aisle at all, right? Like, the, first of all, just that simple premise, like, just blows me away. But what this person has done is he's grasped on to specific issues, and he has decided that I will force obedience to these issues. But what if the world was changed radically? by people who, yes, got involved in the political process because they were driven by a deep abiding love for Christ. Do you remember uh, last week, if you were here, I talked about this box? 
this, this, this box here. And last week, I, I talked a little bit at length about this box. And this box represents what we do to people. We, we say, are you in the box or are you out of the box? And that's how we look at people. Are you in the box? Are you saved? Or are you out of the box? Are you unsaved? And now we have to get, well, what does it mean to, you know? So oftentimes what we say is, you're in the box if you view things just like I view them, <laughs> right? We expand sort of the boundaries and define people inside or outside of the box rather than simply saying, let me in my life point you to the cross. The way we point people into Jesus is radical. And it's through a radical, unquenchable love for Jesus that we point people to the cross. And this love is hard to find an example for in this world around us. But one example would simply be the way that I passionately pursued my wife before she was my wife. As a 19-year-old sophomore in college, I saw this gorgeous blonde that looked to me a lot like she loved Jesus. And I was going to go pursue her and find her and love her and, and, and learn about her. And I pursued her. I, you know, I did these crazy things as, as a sophomore in college. Like, I would write her notes and leave them for her, on her in her little mailbox. Like, I would do that about twice a week. I don't remember the last time I wrote my wife a note. But I mean, it was just dri- I was driven by a passion, desire to pursue this woman. What happens if Jesus, our love for him, is, is, it looks like that? It's the same kind of love that I had when I held my kids. I remember each one of them holding them in my arms for the first time and thinking, I could never love another child the way I love this child right now. And then the next child comes along and I think, I could never love another child the way I love this child. You know, there's this passionate love driven. Or the way I love my brothers in Christ, who there are, there are some men in my life that are just very dear to me and they walk this journey with me and I love them. I love them enough to pursue life with them. What if our love for Jesus looked something like that? Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. Obedience is driven by love for Christ. So, when I love my spouse, like Christ loved the church, even though it's hard, I'm displaying radical, life-changing love for Jesus. When I attend a block party in my neighborhood, even though all I want to do is go home and watch the Cubs and just disconnect for a little bit, I am loving my neighbor because Jesus loves my neighbor and I want to love Jesus. When I refuse to fudge the numbers on a report, even though I know it'll make me look better if I do, I don't do it. Not merely because it's the right thing to do, but because I love Jesus who commanded me to be the kind of man who keeps his word. Do you want to be a disciple? Then live like Jesus because you love Jesus. Then we stop negotiating with God and we surrender. And that's when transformation happens. That is when we truly live like Jesus. Your ability to live like Jesus is directly tied to your status as a loving child of God. But the second thing I want to remind you of is that your ability to live in obedience to Jesus is directly linked to your status 
as a loved child of God. Obedience is driven not just by love for God, but love from God. 1 John 4.19 says this, We love because he first loved us. Did you know that any ability you have to love God or other people comes because God first loved you? Love-driven obedience flows not from the determination to love God, but from the love that God gave us. It all starts with Him. And so we already saw how this passage is bookended by the commands. If you love me, you'll obey my command. It's in the front of this passage, and it's on the back end of this passage. The next thing we do when we look at structure is look what's right in the middle. Because this is how the Jewish brain worked. Important ideas on the edge. Important ideas right in the middle. Do you know what's right in the smack dab middle of this passage? As Jesus is talking about if we love him, we'll keep his commands. And he talks about he sent his spirit to us to live in us. And then right in the middle he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you as orphans. Now, this idea of orphan in the Jewish world was very different. Uh, we think of an orphan and we think of little orphan Annie, right? And, uh, you know, Daddy Warbucks and the whole deal. And we think of the orphans and orphanages and these people that are just waiting to get gobbled up by a loving family, someone who had loved these kids enough to, to adopt them. And that is not what an orphan was in the Jewish world. In the Jewish world, an orphan was oftentimes an adult who had uh, no legal standing at all. So he or she was probably raised somehow without uh, a, an official parental figure in his or her life. So that when an orphan became an adult, that orphan had no standing anywhere. No standing at all. There were no, no self-made men in the ancient world. The class system was firmly in place. Someone in a lower class could never ascend to a higher class. And it's hard for us to get our brains around that as American Christians. But as we do that, you could never jump classes. And so there was an exception to this, however. An orphan, an adult, an adult who had no legal standing could be adopted by someone. Well, why on earth would someone want to adopt an adult? Well, it's because um, you have to remember the death rate in the first century world was very high. And there were many people who would be elite, and this applied both to the Jewish world and to the Roman world, who would be in elite status who had no heir because all their heirs had died. And so they would adopt, they would adopt someone, an adult, and say, you are my now brought in to legal standing. Okay, this is what Jesus did for us in Christ. This is what he did through us for, through his death and resurrection. He adopted us. He gave us a legal standing as his heir. So when Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, he's saying, listen, on your own, you cannot jump classes. You cannot jump on your own to just love me and obey all my commands. The only way you can do this is if I give you the legal standing to do this. And just so you know, I sent my Holy Spirit to accomplish just that. Now this is powerful. Because Jesus is saying, I'm not leaving you alone, hopeless and defenseless. 
I'm going to adopt you into my family. And this statement is the high point of his entire argument. Obey, your com- obey my commands because you love me. On your own, you can't obey them because you don't have the status or standing to do that. But you're not on your own. I've adopted you. You are not orphans. You are a child of God. That's the, the whole point of Jesus' reminder to live like him. Jesus doesn't spend his time reviewing all the individual commands. Jesus spends his time saying, you have to love me to obey my commands. But you can't do that unless you're my child. Obeying the commands of Jesus, friends, is overwhelming. It is overwhelming. When I read this thing, every time I read it, I am completely and utterly convicted. Every single time I read it. It's overwhelming. But even if you're driven by love, living a selfless, selfless, other-centered life is hard. Imagine this. Imagine even our culture. Imagine an orphan is raised without parents. And becoming an adult, she is released to the world. And the world tells her, oh, by the way, almost like getting released from prison, you're on your own now. Go find a job. Go fit into society. Go make a career. Go do it all yourself. So where does she go? What does she do? What are the rules of life? No one's ever bothered to teach her those things. How does she function properly in society? Where should she live? How should she get started? And the easiest road, of course, would be something illegal. We see this all the time. People get released like from jail and they go back into society and the only thing for them is to get right back involved in the criminal affairs that landed them in jail in the first place. It would be no different for an orphan who was raised without the guidance and teaching. This is why Jesus said, you guys, listen, Jesus said, you may feel like this. I'm leaving you and you may feel ill-prepared to handle this on your own, but you're not orphans. That is not you. As overwhelming as it is, you need to understand that you're not an orphan, that you have status as my child. Because I love you, you can love me. You are a child of God. You have been given status as a child of God. You have been given status. Um, there are certain advantages for me of being a child of my father, of, of Charles Brooks III. I, I was his son. And uh, my, one of the things I always knew is that my dad was on my side fighting for me. He was always on my side fighting for me. Case in point, at 16 years old, I was driving through Windsor Heights. You all know, right, from when I say that, that a 16-year-old driving through Windsor Heights is just a bad idea uh, in its own. And of course, I got a speeding ticket at, at 16 years old, and I brought it home, and I had, my head was between, you know, I was like head down, and oh, my tail was between my legs, and I kept thinking, oh, I'm going to have to tell my dad about this. And so I got, brought my speeding ticket as a 16-year-old to my dad, and I said, Dad, I, I know our insurance is going to go up, and I don't know how I'm going to afford this, and... Oh, this is bad. My dad thinks about it, and he goes, you're right, David, it's bad. Uh, let me think about this. The next day, he goes, hey, I talked to a friend of mine I haven't seen for 20 years. I said, oh, yeah, who was that? He goes, oh, yeah, he's the police chief in Windsor Heights. <laughs> he said, I used to go to high school with him. Oh, really? This is years ago, and, and I remember my dad going to bat for me with his friend, and he said, I, I guess I owe a friend uh, lunch <laughs> this, this is the deal. 
and we're going to take care of this. And I just thought, wow. Like that happens because I'm his child. Do you want to live in obedience to Jesus? You have been given status through faith in Christ as a child of God. And you can look at this thing not with overwhelming, oh crud, how am I going to do this? But with joy, knowing you have status as a child of God. This is why living like Jesus isn't scary. It's hope-filled. We live like Jesus because we love him. And we love him because he dearly loves us. God is not far. He's near in you. He's a child. He's, excuse me, you're his child. You're his child. So living like Jesus is hope-filled. Fast forward a number of years, and you guys know the story of my dad and how two years ago in October, uh, my dad died. And it was a long battle with uh, a form of dementia, and his body just wasted away. And as I sat there next to his bed in his final hours and held his hand and watched him breathe his last breath, um, at that moment as I was crying and, and weeping, there was this sudden feeling to me of being all alone. Some of you who have lost parents understand what I'm talking about. There's this all alone, like, I always knew my dad had my back. I always knew he was there for me, and, and now he's gone. And in that moment, as I was feeling this depth of emotion in regard to this, in that moment, as I was feeling that, God brought a simple verse to my mind. It was from Psalm 68, where God says, I am the father to the fatherless. And in that moment, the spirit within me said, you are a child of Charles Brooks III, but you are a child of the living God, and you're not alone. A child of God. Friends, you can live like Jesus, and you can love him, but it all comes from him. It all comes from the Holy Spirit in you, who has given you status as a child of God. So if you're sitting here today wondering, if you're wondering, uh, can I, do I love Jesus? Can I do this? Because I feel pretty inadequate. Know that you're not inadequate because of who God is, because of his spirit in you, because you're a child of the living God. Pastor Jeff is going to come now. And we are going to uh, engage in a time of quiet prayer and reflection together as we close out this portion of our service.